Let's jump into the message for this morning. We are in this series, Why Jesus Hates Religion. I encourage you to follow along with your notes uh, that we've handed out. The working definitions for this series is religion is man's way to get to God. Religion is man's way to get to God. And all world religion basically says the very same thing. Uh, especially if you study the predominant religions like Islam and Buddhism and uh, Judaism and even some forms of Christianity that's gotten away from the heart of the gospel. It all teaches the same thing. You, you do a certain set of rules and live by a certain code of ethics and you obey certain commands. And if you live really good and you have really good moral behavior, then at the end of your life, God may accept you and you may have done well enough and God will, will grant you whatever. And that's basically what every world religion teaches. You do this, you do that. Jesus was God's way to get to man. Jesus was God's way to get to man. God realized there's no way they could ever be good enough. There's no way they could ever do enough. Uh, I mean, just just think of the line of uh, logic on if it was goodness that got you into heaven. And, and unfortunately, a lot of people in our community, if you ask them, how do you go to heaven? They'll tell you, well, you just be a really good person. Well, think about that line of logic for just a moment. If it was about being good, where's the cutoff line? Because if it's about being good, there has to be a cutoff line somewhere, wouldn't there? I mean, if it's about being good and bad, where's the cutoff line? Is it a million good deeds? Well, let's, let's just for, you know, let's, let's just assume it's a million good deeds. How bad would you feel if you were the guy that made it to 900,999,999? You're now going to go to hell forever because you missed it by one? Does that really sound like a logical argument that being good is what it's all about? It's not. Jesus was God's way to get to man. And so what I want to do today is we want to deconstruct religion. We're talking about losing my religion. The, the great song sung by R.E.M. that Tori Amos wrote. We're going to read one of her quotes about religion towards the end of the message today. But if we look at the 20th century today, and this is going to be more like a college class than a typical message uh, today. But I think it's important that we have this information because we all live in communities with people that are constantly critiquing and attacking religion. And we want to understand what the critique is, where it came from, and how to defend ourselves as uh, uh, Christians in a godly and appropriate way. So if you look at the 20th century, you can divide the 20th century into three parts. The first part of the 20th century uh, was typically a, a, a season of faith and religion. Everybody basically believed in something and accepted that there was a higher power. And if you were a skeptic, if you were an atheist, if you were agnostic during the first part of the 20th century, you were almost ostracized and looked down upon. People kind of ridiculed you and criticized you for, for not having faith. Then as we moved into the second part of the 20th century, that's where kind of humanism and atheism and postmodernism and relativism really became very popular and very big. The whole line of thought, the, the, the logic, the philosophy was we needed religion when we didn't understand the world. But now we have science. Now we have uh, uh, we're, we're, we're discovering things and we're, we're inventing new things. So religion was for a time that we were ignorant, that we really didn't understand the world. Now we understand the world. We, we understand how things work and we don't need religion anymore. And that's where John Lennon wrote the song Imagine No Religions. And uh, a very popular atheist of that you know, part of our 20th century was Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek. He once said, for most people, religion is nothing more than a substitute for a malfunctioning brain. And he actually used his art and his craft to advance the atheist agenda as much as possible. Stanley Grenz, a very popular theologian today, wrote a book called A Primer on Postmodernism. And in the book, he does a comparative analysis in one section of the book on Star Trek versus Star Trek New Generations or Next Generation. I don't know. What is it? We're 
Next Generations. Uh, we have a couple Trekkies on the, on the worship team, so they keep me up to date on Star Trek. So it's basically a comparative analysis between Captain Kirk and Captain Picard. And if you watch the original Star Trek, you'll notice that it was completely religionless. There was no faith. There was no religion. Why? Because we're in the future. And in the future, there's no such thing as religion. Uh, it, it's all about science. It's all about intellect. It's all about logic. We don't need religion anymore because it is the future. And that was one of Gene Roddenberry's goals when you, when you really see what he tried to accomplish with Star Trek. And then you move into Star Trek Next Generations, and it was much more about faith. It had much more kind of a religious undertone to it, and they kind of incorporated it back into the series. And then if you look at the, uh, the last third of the 20th century, kind of the, the, the century that leads into where we're at today, there was almost a crisis of non-faith. There was this, this kind of people were losing faith in non-faith. They were losing faith in non-religion. And there was kind of a deep ambivalence towards uh, the, the, the typical uh, old school atheist agnostic philosophy. And that's why we get into terms you hear today called spiritual agnostics. And one of the, one of the women, who really created that term was a lady named Winifred Gallagher, who's a very popular journalist and author. She's written for Rolling Stones and, and New York Times and Vogue. And she wrote a book called Working on God. And I want you to, to hear it from her words. She says, we are well-educated skeptics. We regard religion as belief in unbelievable things. Our trusted tools of intellect and learning have dismantled religious belief. But... We now sense something that eludes those trusted tools. We are finding that we have inexplicable metaphysical feelings. Religion starts with a question. What's true? Is this all there is? Now, unlike believers, we don't have a ready answer to that question. But unlike atheists and the older agnostics, we can't help hearing in the question the possibility of something beyond. I've tried to answer this question or at least muffle the question in all the accustomed ways all of my life. Love, achievement, stuff, therapy. Uh, but they did not answer the question. So I wrote two books on science, but they did not answer the question. In late adolescence, I had dismissed religion as anachronistic wish fulfillment. But my middle age, I have wearily recognized that religion is the only road I have not taken in pursuit of the answer. And she goes on to tell a story of a dinner table conversation with some of her friends and the topic of God and religion came up. And normally it was received very hostile. But at this this particular dinner, what, what they found is people are haunted by faith. They've discovered that science hasn't answered all the questions that they have, that there are feelings, that there is something beyond science they can't put their finger on. Now, they hate religion. But they're haunted by faith. So this morning, what I want us to do is let's not resist the critique on religion. Let, let's look at the critique on religion. Let's, let's listen to it. Why? Because smart people hate religion. And in fact, Jesus systematically deconstructed religion in the most savage way in the Bible. But I want you to understand, Jesus hated religion and deconstructed religion for an entirely different motivation than modern man. So if you are a Christian today, if you follow Jesus Christ, let's, let's hear in this critique on religion, the modern critique, so that you don't find yourself slipping into it unknowingly. 
And today, if you're just checking out Christianity, if you've been invited to the church and you may be more on the skeptic side of Christianity and just kind of observing today, I want you to hear the critique of modern religion so that you can differentiate the difference between Christianity and religion because they are radically, radically different. So let me get, let, let's look at three things today as we dig into this message. Number one, the modern critique of religion. Let's, let's look at the modern critique of religion. Where do we get our unhappiness with religion? Well, it really comes down to three guys, three pioneers who led the way of this modern critique of religion, who really kind of set the foundational stones for modern atheism, modern agnosticism, uh, postmodernism, uh, humanism, and they are Freud, Marx, and Nietzsche. Now, I know two of these guys are kind of intellectually passe, and they're not really regarded uh, highly anymore, but one of them is still pretty hot with a lot of people. Now, I'm not an expert on these guys, but I did read a book uh, and study a book by Merrill Westfall called Suspicion and Faith, The Religious Uses of Modern Atheism, and in which he kind of breaks apart each of their critiques on modern modern religion and why they said what they said. So let's first look at Freud. Freud said religion is psychological self-justification. Religion is psychological self-justification. We created a God to alleviate our guilt and our fear so that we could live however we want, so we could justify our lifestyle. We don't want to change our behavior. We don't want to change our lifestyle. So we created a God so that we could go to God and do our Hail Marys and do our repentance and and, and do whatever we need to do to balance and even the scale so we could go on living however we wanted to live. That's what Freud said. That was his critique on religion. There's an incredible case study in the book where it talks about a little eight-year-old girl who grew up in a very strict home with very severe parents. And every time she would misbehave, she would get punished. And she, would, she, she really had this problem with misbehaving. And what they began to notice is that the more she was punished, the more she misbehaved. The, the, the punishment, even though it was severe, wasn't you know, curbing her, her misbehaving uh, uh, lifestyle that she would continue. And, and in fact, what they noticed is she would actually do things to try to get caught. Like if her, if her parents wouldn't catch her right away, she would hint or allude or, or do something so that they would ask and so that she would confess, get punished, and then move on. And what the psychologist noticed is she was kind of using her parents to live however she wanted to live. She could do whatever she wanted to do as long as she paid. As long as she paid the price, as long as she was punished, as long as she was disciplined, then her conscience was clear. She, she could justify the action because I paid for that so I can keep doing whatever I want to do as long as I pay for it. That's a great, a great example of this is the movie Godfather. And the original Godfather at the end of the movie... We have the entire Corleone family in church. They're, they're baptizing a baby. And as they're baptizing the baby in church, if you watch the movie, all of their henchmen are out ruthlessly killing people. But it's okay because they're in church. And this is what Freud said. You know, as long as you're in church and as long as you give and you were building this and doing that and, you know, I'm living, living a good life and part of church, then I can do whatever I want to do on the side as long as I balance it out by being religious. And that was Freud's critique on the church that we use God to self-justify our behavior. And the problem is the fruit of that is you get very smug people. You get self-righteous. You find hypocrites. There's people that are riddled with anxiety and guilt living that way. And that was Freud's critique on religion. Now, Marx took it a step further. Marx said religion is sociological justification. Religion isn't just psychological justification, but it's sociological justification. You see, Marx and Freud both studied under a philosopher named Ludwig Feuerbach. And Feuerbach was the one that made the statement, it's not as in the Bible. 
that God created man in his own image, but on the contrary, man created God in his own image. See, Feuerbach said that God didn't create us in his image. We created God in our image. Why? So that we could exclude other people. We create a God that looks like us. We create a God that believes what we believe. We create a God so that we can justify our race, our social class, our standing, our truth. And that's how we justify all of the imperialism, all of the slavery, the crusades, the holy wars. Why? Because we're the enlightened ones. We have the truth. Uh, God loves us best because we create this God that looks like us. And that was Marx's critique on religion. That's why Marx said... Uh, religion is the opiate of the masses. And what he was saying is, if you understand opium at this day and age, opium was not a pleasure narcotic. It was a painkiller. It numbed you so you could deal with the pain of life. That's what Marx was saying. People use religion to numb themselves so that they could justify all of the abuse of their race, the abuse of their social class, the, the endorsement of slavery, the African slave trade, to the uh, uh, imperialism, to taking over the Native Americans. Well, whatever you want to call it, we use religion to to kind of uh, soothe ourselves, to, to be a painkiller, to justify all of the abuse that's going on in the name of religion. And the second thing Marx said about religion is you also use religion to oppress your own people. You know, if your own people begin to rebel because they don't like poverty and they don't like the conditions they're living in, you could say, hey, it's okay, just just suffer and survive because we have something greater to look forward to after this life. And so you could use religion to oppress your own people. So Marx is saying religion is for the wealthy and powerful to oppress people, to, to sociologically exclude other races, other social classes. It, it keeps us in power so that we can dominate other people groups and take over countries and do terrible things. And it justifies that. And that was Marx's critique on religion. It sociologically excludes. And now Nietzsche, uh, Nietzsche was the most powerful. Nietzsche had the most devastating critique on religion today because Nietzsche took it the furthest. And he said, Nietzsche says, all truth is just a power play. All truth is just a power trip. You're just using truth to accrue power and to control people and to abuse people. And Nietzsche is the most powerful critic. He said that religion is nothing more but a power trip. Uh, you are attempting to use God, to use religion to accrue power over others. And that's why he went much further than Marx went. He, sa he said that all truth claims are power trains. He's looking at the motivation. You know, Marx is saying that, that you're using religion to oppress people and you've got to love people. Love, and Nietzsche is saying, what's the motivation? Do you really love people or are you just saying love people to keep people uh, under your thumb by making yourself superior to them? Nietzsche's looking at the heart. Nietzsche's looking at the motivation. The reason why Marx and Freud are considered intellectually passe today is because if you look at the fruit of their critique on religion, uh, they were used to create new movements that all they did was create new dictators. You look at modern day uh, Cambodia and China and you look at uh, communist Russia and Nazi Germany and it's obvious to see that Marx was wrong. That, that all Marx did was use his critique of religion to set up a new set of dictators. They moved from, from religious dictators to now non-religious dictators and you say, well, isn't it religion that has caused so much war and so much violence and so much heartache from the Crusades to the Holy Wars? Well, if that, if that line of logic is correct, if, if, if you say, well, religion has caused all the problems and pain in society, then how do you explain communist Russia? 
Because that was the most anti-religious government, the most non-religious government. They should have been the most peaceful, loving, wonderful society. The, the utopia that Marx described should have been communist Russia, but it failed miserably because all it did was set up another set of dictators. So it's not about being religious or non-religious. The heart of man is just evil. You know, the heart of man, you, you can have non-religious people will oppress people as easily as religious people will oppress and abuse people. And that's what Nietzsche is saying. See, Freud's saying, listen, you're trying to justify yourself. Marx is saying you're trying to justify your race or your social class. Nietzsche's saying you just want to accrue power and the result is abuse. See, Marx said, you know, religion and rich people want power. Nietzsche's saying religion and anybody wants power power religion is just using god to accrue power and the result is always the same it creates self-righteousness and or anxiety and social exclusion and it's just a general power trip it's just a general power trip but here's the problem the modern critique of religion is good i agree with a modern i I agree with what nietzsche is saying what marx is saying what i think it's good but the problem is it leaves us stuck it doesn't give us an answer it gives us another dilemma, another conundrum that we have to deal with. It's like an ink blot. If you go to, you know, like the psychologist and they show you the ink blot and you're trying to figure out what it is. Once they explain it to you, you can never not see it again. You know, it's like uh, it's like the logo of our church. My wife pointed out this out to me. I know I'm about to ruin our logo for everybody, but our logo to me says coastline. But if you look at the T and the L, uh, a lot of people uh, see an H. And so people are asking, is it coastline? Uh, what is it? And now I just ruined it. You'll never be able to see our logo the same again. Uh, that's why we have a team working on changing the logo because I've never seen it. But once you see it, you can't go back. And, the, and, and that, that, that's, that's the problem with the critique of religion. You, know, you see, before Freud, before Marx, before Nietzsche, religion was so unbelievably self-justifying. It was blinding. It was abusive. It was terrible. But now I really don't know how anybody can't see it. I don't know how anyone in the world can't see religion as an abusive, horrible thing. I just don't know. I mean, because the critique is is so obvious. Once you see it, you see it. The problem is that the modern uh, solution to religion is they, they really came up with three strategies to religion. Number one, outlaw religion. That's what we saw happen in communists, uh, Russia and China and in Nazi Germany. And we saw that that failed terribly. The other solution is condemn religion. Make religious people look like crazy fanatics. Make them look like lunatics. Just just condemn anybody that's religion we're about science but again you'll you'll see a major flaw with that in a moment and then the third thing is people say well you need to privatize religion you need to privatize religion religion is not for the public religion is something that you need to just hold to yourself privately don't try to convert people that's you know people say well you're just trying to convert people to your way of thinking you're trying to convert people to your belief system the only problem with that is the same people telling me i'm wrong for trying to convert people to christianity are trying to convert me to their belief system do you see the dilemma by them telling me not to go out and convert, they're trying to convert me to their faith, their, their belief and non-belief. And that's the problem with the modern critique of religion. Number two, the problem with the modern critique of religion is we get stuck. We get stuck. Why? Why are we stuck? Because the modern critique of religion has become its very own religion. It's become the religion of non-religion. It's become the faith of non-faith. It's become the belief in non-belief. All they did was get rid of one religion and set up another religion because a religion is simply a set of belief, a lifestyle, a code of ethics you live by. 
And that's all they did. We've moved past John Lennon, but now we're stuck. We've moved past Roddenberry, but, but we don't know what the answer is. You see, Freud said, you're just using religion to justify your lifestyle. But how much more is it self-justifying to say there is no religion to justify your lifestyle? You see, it's the very same thing. It's identical. Freud says, you created a God to live however you wanted to live. But it's the very same thing to say there is no God to live however you want to live. Adolf Huxley was very honest about this. He's, you know, one of our modern atheist philosophers and humanists. Uh, He said at one time, he said, you know, when I went off to college and I really began to study the possibility of whether there is a God or whether there is no God and what's really out there, I had just began to have sex. And and as I began to study, you know, religion and God and everything else, I realized that the the possibility of no God was much more appealing to my personal lifestyle, because to accept a God, I would have to change certain behaviors. And so you see what you know, he was very honest about it, very honest about it. And that's what Freud is saying. But the problem is, it's even more justifying to say there is no God. N.T. Wright, a very popular New Testament scholar, he's, he, he's one of the experts on the historic reliability of the New Testament. Uh, he was asked in an interview recently about some of his modern contemporaries, because there's a lot of New Testament scholars today that are moving away from the historical reliability of the Bible. They're becoming very liberal in their thought and their theology. And they asked uh, N.T. Wright about it, and he said something that was was pretty amazing. He said, you know what, I'll tell you exactly what happened with these guys. They all went off to graduate school fully believing the Bible to be true, fully believing the reliability of the New Testament. And as they got into graduate school, they began to have sex. And instead of changing their lifestyle... To, to come into congruent with their belief system, they change their belief system to come in alignment with their lifestyle. And it's very obvious. You see that continually. And I, I know what you're saying. Well, that's true. But Freud, he's passe. We, we, we're all about Nietzsche. Nietzsche was the one that, that, that really said it best. Well, let's look at the problem with Nietzsche's philosophy. Nietzsche, again, says any truth claim is a power play. You're just trying to get my group under your thumb. Here's the problem. There's no greater power trip than to say all truth claims are a power trip but mine. Do you see what Nietzsche is doing? He's saying all truth claims are a power trip but my truth claim. My truth claim is right. I am the right one. Everybody else is wrong. I am right. All truth claims are a power trip. And, and, and let, me, let me illustrate why there's such an issue with this and why, why it really brings a dilemma if you're honest about it intellectually. Uh, he, here it is. In the Chronicle of Higher Education, there was an article that was written a few years ago by, by a woman doctor. She's an anthropologist. She studies uh, so, sociolo- sociology. And this lady is completely committed to the Nietzschean hermeneutics of suspicion. She totally is against Marx and Freud. She, she looks at Marx as just setting up another religion, another kind of power trip. She was all about Nietzsche. And she was studying in Africa. And what she saw in Africa was appalling. She saw women being, being put into sexual slavery, women being abused, women being oppressed, women going through all sorts of just atrocities of life. And this is what she said in the article. She said, all of my life, I was committed to the idea that all truth claims are a power play. And that one culture never has the right to say to another culture what they should do because it's just a power trip. But what I'm seeing in Africa is evil. 
And she goes on to say that she she approached the leaders of the nations in, in Africa and tried to say, you know, why are you doing this? Why, why is this happening? And this is what they told her. They said, you're just trying to impose your Western individualistic view on us. You call it sexual slavery, but we don't see it that way. That's just your Western view. And what she realized about Nietzsche's claim that all truth claims are a power trip was the biggest power trip of all because that's exactly what they were using to oppress women. That's exactly what they were using to keep people in bondage was this claim that you can't impose your Western belief system on us. Why is your truth better than my truth? And and because the claim that everything is relative is a dogma. It is a religion in and of itself. Nietzsche says, listen, there is no God. You have to get beyond good and evil. But the problem is if your premise leads you to a conclusion that you know is wrong. See, that's what happened to this anthropologist. She she had a premise that all truth claims are a power trip. It led her to a conclusion of what she saw in Africa that she knew was wrong. There was no way to deny it. The conclusion was wrong. You have to change your premise. See, that's the problem. You have to change your premise. And that's why we're having a crisis of non-faith right now in the agnostic world. That's why you have terms like spiritual agnostic. They hate religion, but they're haunted by faith because they know science doesn't have all the answers. And the problem is the critique has become the religion. The world is not better because of relativism. The world is not better because of humanism. The world is not better because of atheism. We saw what atheism did, again, in communist Russia and China. You know, it did not make the world better getting rid of religion. So what's the answer? Number three, Jesus answers the problem of religion. Jesus answers the problem of religion. We, we, we want to say the problem with the religion is fanatics. It's the fanatics. And, and there's truth to that. Listen to this, this, this article or this uh, paragraph in Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. Think of people you consider fanatical. They're overbearing, self-righteous, opinionated, insensitive, and harsh. Why? It's not because they're too Christian or over Christian. It's because they're not Christian enough. They're fanatically zealous and courageous, but they're not fanatically humble, sensitive, loving, empathetic, forgiving, or understanding as Christ was. Because they think of Christianity as self-improvement program. They emulate the Jesus of the whips in the temple, but not the Jesus who said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And see, this is the problem with Marx and Freud and Nietzsche. This is what Westfall said in his book. They were completely unoriginal in their critique. They were behind in their critique. Everything they said about religion, the Bible beat them to it. They were unoriginal. They were simply plagiarizing the Bible critiquing religion. Look at Amos 8 verse 6. You exploit the poor using them. And then when they're used up, you discard them. You say Marx said that. Yeah, but the Bible said it first. You see, the Bible critiqued religion first. Uh, Isaiah 58, 6 and 7. No, this is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly in prison. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free. Remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry. Give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them. And do not hide from relatives who need your help. Again, you say, well, Marx taught that. No, the Bible taught it first. Marx was completely unoriginal in his critique. Freud was completely unoriginal in his creed. Jesus said Christianity is not even a religion. It's a gospel. Matthew 11. And the gospel is preached to the poor. That word gospel in the Greek is the word evangelisto. 
That word has a historical definition. Jesus intentionally used that word to give you a review from a couple weeks ago. The word gospel means a historic event that the world wonderfully receives. When Augustus Octavius became Caesar of Rome, the news bulletin went out to the world. Here begins the gospel of Caesar Augustus. What Jesus is saying is that Christianity is not just different in teaching. Christianity is different in form from religion. Religion is philosophy. Religion is ethics. Religion is is rules and commandments. Christianity is a historical event that happened. You receive, it is a gospel. It is not a religion. And again, that's why the Romans called Christians atheists for the first 200 years. Because the claims that Christians had about God was so shocking and so radical that no world religion would ever say the things that the Christians said about God. Nobody would ever do that. Jesus was the most anti-religious, the most unreligious leader of a religion in the entire world. I mean, Jesus said stuff that shocked everybody. You know, Matthew 23, they crush people with unbearable religious demands. They never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. That's what Nietzsche said. Yeah, but Jesus said it first. Jesus critiqued it first. So here's the answer. Here's the answer to the problem with the critique of religion. Jesus says, God can buy you, but you can never Never by God. See, that's the answer. God can purchase you, but you can never buy God. You can't buy God off with your lifestyle. You can't buy God off with your behavior. You can't buy God off with your good works. Uh, Again, and the reason for God, Tim Keller says it like this. The tendency of religious people, however, is to use spiritual and ethical observance as a lever to gain power over others and over God, appeasing him through ritual and good works. In the Sermon on the Mount, we just finished reading that as a church in our soap plan, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The people Jesus criticizes, now listen to this. The people that Jesus criticizes pray, give to the poor, and seek to live a life according to the Bible. But they do so in order to get acclaim and power for themselves. That's why I told you you can't separate the world between the good and the bad because none of us are good enough. None of us. And to truly embrace Christ... Remember, you have to learn to repent of something other than your sin. It's easy to repent for the bad things you've done. But to really embrace Christ, you have to repent for the motivation of why you did the good things. Because so many of us do good to control. We do good to to give ourselves a step up over people. We do good to kind of control God and manipulate God and get what we want from God in other people. And that's the heart of religion. Do good to get power. Do good to control. Do good so that you can abuse others. And Jesus always destroyed that philosophy. Jesus was always against that. I love in, in Luke 10, the expert in religious law comes to Jesus and he says, teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you know, the law, love God, love people. And the guy said, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus shocks the world by telling us the story of the good Samaritan. And one of the things that I, that I realized this week, that's kind of ironic about the Bible is the only place in the entire Bible it talks about religion in a positive way is James 1.27. You know, in James 1.27, it says pure and genuine religion. Now, why did, why did a, a James had to clarify pure and genuine religion? Because James was assuming most religion isn't pure and most religion uh, isn't genuine. He says pure and genuine religion in the sight of God, the Father, means caring for orphans and widows in their distress. And the reason that's ironic is because religion always leaves out the poor. Religion always leaves out. Religion is for self-made people. 
Religion is for people who have great self-discipline and, and, and great work ethic and, and, and are just morally better than other people. That's, that's who appeals to religion. And Jesus said, no, no, no. Religion is for everybody. It levels the playing field. Religion is, is not serving God. Religion is trying to control God. It's a power trip. Tori Amos, who wrote the song, Losing My Religion, she said, when we talk about religion and my unacceptance of the institution, it's because it must be held accountable for its abuse of the truth. And she's absolutely right. Religion, people have taken this book and have turned it to a religion and have abused and have hurt and have controlled and have manipulated people. And we have to get it back to the gospel, the heart of the gospel, because it makes no sense to religious people. What do you mean? God became weak so we could be saved? That's not God. We want a powerful God. Well, we have a powerful God, but God chose to become weak so that we could be saved. And once you really realize what God did for you, you realize you can never buy God off. God can't be reached through manipulation and moral performance. He's not going to be controlled that way. So let me give you the heart of the gospel. It's it's really simple. And this is a struggle for North County people to really accept. But this is the heart of the gospel. You are far more wicked and evil than you ever imagined. Just meditate on that for a moment. See, that, that, that's the struggle. Why? Because the, the biggest problem with our community is our goodness. We're so good, we don't need God. I don't need God. I'm a good person. We, we moved here because we don't want to be around the bad people. They're the ones who really need grace. They're the ones who, who really need God. We're the good people. No, you have to understand, you are far more wicked and evil than you ever possibly imagined. But at the very, very same time, don't miss this. You're far more loved and accepted than you ever hoped dream for. And that's the power of the gospel. See, God is so holy that he could not overlook our sin, but at the very same time, God was so loving, he could not punish us for it. He punished Jesus for our sin. See, it's the holiness and the love. That's what makes grace so absolutely beautiful. And our desire is that you have a gospel self-esteem. We have too many people that have high self-esteem. They look down on others. But there's too many people with low self-esteem. They're insecure. They never know if they're, they're good enough. What we want is a gospel self-esteem. People who are incredibly bold. Why are you bold? Because you know that you're loved. You know that you're accepted. And at the very same time, incredibly humble. Why are you humble? Because you know you're a sinner. You know at the heart, you know, you're evil without God. So what the gospel does is it levels the playing field. It allows you to be bold and humble at the very same time. You don't have to wonder whether or not God accepts you or approves of you. You don't have to be timid around God. Wonder He's not a cosmic cop in the sky waiting to catch you doing something wrong. He already sent punishment. It fell completely on Jesus. He's not waiting to punish you. Punishment has been served. It's already been paid for. It is finished. There's no punishment coming. It's already been dealt with. Jesus was punished completely on the cross so that you could receive the love of God freely. But it's your choice to receive it. It's your choice to receive it. And let me let me let me just read to you. There there was a atheist couple who found Christ, and I love their story. Let me let me read to you the wife's statement. She said, "As an atheist, I thought I lived a moral, community-oriented, concerned with social justice kind of life." But Christianity had an even higher standard down to our thoughts and state of our hearts. 
Listen to her husband. He said, while sitting in a coffee shop reading C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, I put down the book and wrote in my notebook, the evidence surrounding the claims of Christianity is simply overwhelming. I realized that my achievements were ultimately unsatisfying. The approval of man is fleeting. That a carpe diem life lived solely for adventure is just another form of narcissism and idolatry. So I became a believer in Christ. That's our heart today is to give you an opportunity to really check out Christianity. But more than that, to know that there is a God that does not want to be your religion. He wants to be your dad. You got to know God's heart is he is building a family and he desperately wants you to be a part of his family. He wants you to be a part of his family so much that he came to earth and paid for it through his son. See, religion is we got to try to climb to God. Christianity is God came to us so that we could take it freely. That's grace. That's the heart of the gospel. So would you close your eyes for a moment? Just all across this room, close your eyes. I'm going to say a very simple prayer. And in this prayer, we're just going to ask and invite God to, to, to really take priority in our life, plain and simple. We want God to be the priority of our life. We want to be a part of his family. This is what Christians call being born again. And you may not fully understand what that, that is, but you know you need it. And you know, I mean, either, either your heart is being tugged right now or it's not. You know. And you know whether or not you're part of God's family today or you're not part of his family today. You know whether or not you have a religion or you have a gospel. Because there are many people with religion that really need to embrace Christ and find a gospel. Because they are radically, radically different. So if that's you today, or maybe there's somebody out here that you could say, you know, there was a time in my life I really did feel like I was part of God's family, but I'm estranged today. I'm kind of away from him today. But you need to hear loud and clear that God is saying, would you come home? Would you come home? Would you come back? So if you're in either one of those situations, with every eye closed, just out of respect for your friends and neighbors that are here today. If you'd like to join me in a very simple prayer, I'm not going to ask you to stand up or come forward or single you out or embarrass you in any way. But if you want to join me in a very simple prayer, would you just raise your hand quickly and then you can put it back down just so I know who's joining me. Right now, just raise your hand. Thank you. 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 You can put your hands down. I want you to say this prayer to yourself. God can hear your heart. You don't even need to say it out loud. God can hear your heart. But the first part of the prayer is I just want you to invite God to take priority of your life. I I know you fully probably don't even understand what all that means. And it's a process of really, truly figuring it out. But it does take a first step of inviting God into your life of what we say, receiving the gift of Jesus Christ. So would you just say, God, I really don't even fully understand it, but right now I invite you into my life. Say that in your own words to him. The second part of that prayer is what we call forgiveness. We all need it. Again, none of us are good enough. None of us. So it's not about our good works. It's about forgiveness. And he's already paid for the forgiveness and he desperately wants to give it to you. All you have to do is ask. So would you just say, God, forgive me. And then the last part of that prayer is, I would encourage you to just say thank you. In your own words, just say, God, thank you. Thank you. I'm beginning the adventure of a lifetime. I fully don't even know where it's going to end up, but thank you. Thank you. Now, if you prayed that prayer, you can look up for a moment. 
on your connection card, there's two boxes. One says, I'm committing my life to Christ. The other says, I'm renewing my commitment to Christ. If you made either decision this morning, I would encourage you to check one of those. Drop it off in the tithe and offering box as you leave. We'd love to connect with you and give you the tools to really walk out the relationship and the decision you made. There's also these books outside that say, now what? It's a great question. Many people have after they invite God into their life. Now what? It's a very simple book. It'll walk you through the next steps of, of, and really answer that question. Now what? There's also Bibles available. Anything you need, it's yours. It's all free. Everything here is free of charge. Take anything you want. Raid the refrigerator in the cafe if you want. It's not mine. I don't own any of it. It's yours. So just take whatever you want. Stand with me. I'd just like to pray a prayer blessing as we leave today. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I just pray right now that you would bless the people that are here today, the family. Bless their marriages, bless their careers, bless their families, bless their children. Lord, what we need more than anything is to know that you love us. So right now, Holy Spirit, would you just impress upon our hearts how much the Father loves us? We know that your primary role is to, to, to really help us feel and know how much we are loved and accepted and righteous and worthy. And God, as I heard between services that there was a bicycle fatality just a, a block away from our church. I pray right now for, I don't know who it is, I don't know the family, but right now we just ask that you would cover them with love, that you would cover them with peace, that you would be with the family. You'd be with everyone involved. Be with the, uh, the, the, the person driving the car. You know, whether it was an accident or, or we, don't, we don't know what happened. God, we're not making a judgment. But just be with the driver because he's got to be going through some unbelievable emotions and feelings right now as well as the family of the person that was on the bicycle. So just be with them and cover them today with your love. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I invite you to join us next week as we finish our series.